Hello and welcome to another Urban Health Council show here on City Centric. This episode is a conversation between Centric's Araceli Camargo and Professor Elam Kelman of the University College London on how he sees equitable engagement with communities as a researcher and practitioner. This conversation is part of the Urban Health Council's latest stream of work on communities, the lived experience and health. Two reports on this topic have been produced, which are open to be read online at urbanhealthcouncil.com. Please do go check them out after this conversation if you haven't already. And now for the show. Sorry, I might as well start recording because you're about to say something really smart. So go ahead. <laughs> I don't know about that. Now the expectations that were being recorded. <laughs> um, so all knowledge forms, including science, have major advantages and limitations. Mm-hmm. Science is phenomenal. It has got us a long way. It gives us so much, but there is a certain scientific mindset which can make it difficult to jump outside the data and which can cause issues if the fundamental bases of the data are challenged, but that actually undermines why a person is in science or what they're doing with their science. And there's absolutely a wonderful publication from 1979, amazingly, called The Bias of Science which actually goes through many of these issues. And of course, there's been over a generation uh, of work on similar topics since then. So the key is to make the point that it's not about dissing science or undermining it or setting it aside or avoiding it, just that we always need to bring together different approaches and different knowledges to try and corroborate, to use each's strengths to overcome each's limitations. And this can be very hard, particularly for public servants where they have a mandate and they probably fulfill their mandate very well. But stepping outside that in any way is not part of their job description, so they actually cannot. Plus, they enjoy being within their little realm of uh, dealing with the numbers and or the models and or the quantitative data, which is understandable. That's how they're trained. That's why they're in the career. Hmm. And it can be a long process and require very careful steps and interaction to convince people to jump out of the box which they're in and also which we're in because we have our own boxes and we have our own biases. So, yeah, I mean, these are the questions to be asked. There may not be straight answers, but it's important to try to do it and to push it and hopefully in cooperation with Public Health England and others to avoid alienating, to avoid criticizing, but going forward together with joint constructive critique about all of us. Mm. So I think I'm going to change the questions and I'm going to ask you. Um, can you speak, if possible, about knowledge supremacy? Because it goes into what you're saying. So we defined, I should say, we identified knowledge supremacy as a as the system of a homogenized knowledge pool that then creates this hegemonic ruling, right? Because it, it, it influences policy and it influences health, and it influences even at times how our cities are created. So the decision tree coming down that policy is instituted based on certain scientific bodies saying, quote unquote, this is safe, this is not safe for health. From there, it comes down to, okay, well, then what is permissible in terms of the cities and the habitats that we're creating And then all the way down comes the lived experience. Arguably, at Centric, we would say that it needs to go the other way around because it is that lived experience that people feel 
And it's that lived experience that people report on, right? So what I will say from that is if you are feeling sick, if you are feeling that something in the environment is making you sick, it doesn't really matter then if you can quantify it or not. That even that just feeling of sickness and malaise can make the body sick, right? So how do we break down that knowledge supremacy to go with what you're saying? So we look at the last piece of research that we did, we talked about creating an equitable ecosystem of science, where, as you said, you're pulling from various knowledges. But then from a psychological perspective to to the people performing the science, how do you, what do you think are the cognitive tools or what are some maybe even principles that you implement to allow them to go? Let me stay open. Let me listen to the phenomena that is happening and acknowledge the phenomena that is happening, even if I don't quite understand it, to then develop different methods to be able to go, okay, this is why this community is getting sick, or this is why this is occurring. What you described is science. So it's definitely not separate from it. And I think I pick up four main points, um, which I guess I can address. So supremacy, mm-hmm. policy impact, hegemony, and lived experience. All of those are science and are not science. I would actually suggest in many policy realms It is not science, which is a supreme knowledge. Hmm. In recent centuries, it's more technology, which often comes from science, but not necessarily. Sometimes technology drives science. Sometimes science drives technology. Sometimes it's both simultaneously. Sometimes we actually have the technology, but not the science. And even if we look today at the media falling all over themselves for the IPCC report, This is a classic example where the first IPCC type assessment, it wasn't IPCC, but type assessment on humans changing the climate was 1970. So we're talking two generations and there has been zero knowledge supremacy or scientific supremacy in terms of policy and action. Interestingly, the Royal Society published a fascinating report in 2002 on genetically modified plants where it said science should not dictate policy. It came out very clearly saying science has to be policy input. We have to have science, but for policy and action, more than science has to be taken into account. So yes, I have met scientists who say science is supreme and everything should be done with science and science is the evidence we need. That's a minority. So knowledge supremacy, I think, actually does come from lived experience. You know, our prime minister is currently governing by his lived experience. Mm-hmm. And other inputs to knowledge are sometimes there, sometimes not. You know, he's gone back and forth on the science, but it's not always there. He's actually just his own worldview, his own positionality, his own lived experience. And that's pretty typical of many politicians in the contemporary era. Hmm. So regarding policy impact, it's then a question of how, well, number one, do we actually want science to form policy impact? And I would absolutely argue yes. Doesn't mean supreme policy impact, but far, far more yes. How do we achieve that? Well, maybe we need more scientists in power, Mm. which might actually be a terrifying thought. But how many heads of state or heads of government are actually scientists? Angela Merkel, Mm -hmm. 
Otherwise, most of the ones that I know have either been um, figurehead presidents or have not been overly successful. Yeah. So that's really interesting what you said about the governing of the lived experience. But the sorry, the knowledge supremacy comes at a cultural level as well, so that we we have now expected, or I should say there is a social expectation that unless a phenomena is presented in this very specific unit of measurement that is called data. So it's not even going to information yet. It's just this unit of measurement. Unless it is presented in that way, it is dismissed. And that is how we, again, as a collective society, expect this exchange between, right? And we've seen it all through COVID, for example, everyone that started to experience the long-term effects of COVID. The fur, one of the first things that ended up happening is people saying there's no, and I, by people, I mean the medical WHO. We don't, well, there is no such thing as COVID. It's two weeks and it does this and it does that. And the symptoms are as follows. And it was a, a, an organization called Body Politic that um, now in collaboration with UCL logged all of the uh, symptoms and lived experience of people with long haul COVID created a report. Now there is in a data information type format, which is the interface that an organization like WHO understands. And then the identification of long haul COVID came to be. But in that process, that still doesn't stop the people that six months prior were saying, this is what's happening to my body. So how do we close that gap? Because that's right, that's six months of adding also to the trauma of the person who's saying this is what's happening to my body and being told that it's not. And we lose six months of valuable research and we lose six months of healing, more importantly. We work together. Hmm. Journalism rejects the idea of a quantum packet being necessary to prove. Journalism works on the basis of personal anecdotes and one story, one narrative representing everyone or being representative of everyone. So we as scientists get incredibly frustrated. It's like, but look at my graph, look at the numbers. And the journalist wants to know, yeah, but how does it affect this person in the street? Mm. So we have to work together and we do. And some journalists have scientific training, some don't. Um, some scientists are able to communicate, some are not. So it's that balance of saying, how do we take the quantum packet as one important contribution to knowledge, but not the ultimate? How do we take the anecdote as one important contribution to knowledge, but not the ultimate? Hmm. Health in particular is challenging, and this has been shown again and again for women's health, like endometriosis, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the fact that vaccines are messing up menstrual cycles. Um, and Carolyn Criado Perez, who wrote Invisible Women, has written a book about this, and she continues to point out where the default human being is assumed to be a man, and when men are in charge of designing shoes or designing drugs, the not the woman's lived experience, but women's experiences tend to be secondary, dismissed, or assumed to be the exception. Mm. So that's an interesting word or phrase that you just did. 
or exception. sorry, you just said yes, deemed to be the exception. So if we go back to the phenomenon, the let's call it the the activities or the events that we're seeing within this conversation between the lived experience of, of environmental injustice and the study of environmental injustice. Again, in the science world, we wait until there is two, three, four, five, six, you know, events that we can then quantify. Well, can I interrupt and yeah, challenge sure, that? Yeah, sure, sure, yeah, yeah. Because this goes to the third point. Science is not mm. hegemonic. It's not hegemonic. Hegemonic. Science is not hegemony. No, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. But it shouldn't, and it isn't. Yeah. Mm. Anthropology is based on one individual's experience. Mm. You know, they might be there for five years or ten years or whatever, but it's that researcher being in that context, just looking around, talking to people, and reporting. And that's science. There are papers published on the basis of one interview. If we're talking about issues of leadership, then there's nothing wrong with doing research on the world's richest or poorest person, the world's oldest person, things like that. That's the sample size of one. Mm. Other scientists reject this entirely. And so there are these debates in science where the, you know, the person will say, well, they're seismologists. Why are they talking to me about volcanoes? Which is ridiculous, but this is what happens. It gets even worse. We're physical volcanologists and chemical volcanologists will battle each other saying, no, 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 physical signs are, no, no, the chemical signs, blah, 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 blah. They're both volcanologists trained in the same way, but one specializes in one and one specializes in the other. We are trying to overcome this. This is highly disciplinarism. This is high siloism. And this is what we're trying to break down. Mm. Climate change is actually a real problem because the climate change modelers are coming out saying we're all going to die from floods and fires and storms. Anyone who studies disasters knows that you can deal with fires, floods, and storms, and climate change is actually irrelevant. So heat is different. Heat is absolutely incredibly dangerous. It's going to kill thousands, um, and that's coming directly from climate change. But no matter what climate change does to floods, fires, storms, and droughts, we could deal with it if we want. Yeah, I remember this was one of our yeah, first conversations. Okay. The media, though, want the climate scientists and want this narrative of humans being ex coming extinct because of climate change, which is patently ridiculous. Climate scientists in their own world, with no concept of disaster research or anthropology or sociology or even meteorology at times, it's remarkable, then get the airtime and this narrative builds up of climate change killing us. So science is far from a hegemony. And in fact, yeah. that means that lived experience, that fourth point, is part of science and is accepted in those disciplines. But also, we did this. Yeah. Which I think I mentioned. Yes. This is lived experience. And yes, okay, five publishers rejected it. But we didn't take no for an answer. The sixth publisher was phenomenally supportive. They even said, you have a couple of academic chapters in it take them out we want to publish an academic book which is lived experience yeah and and it's good to hear that there are areas where this is happening but in terms of the environmental justice area we have seen it time and time again so there's there's um for example and maybe th this will be the ending question i'll give you one specific example so <laughs> there's probably about two questions in that okay so the so the cancer corridor I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's it runs from Louisiana, 
um, it starts, I think, in, Bat- in Baton Rouge and goes up. And, um, and where I mean in terms of what is good enough, so in terms of the measurement, when three, four, five people start to say, I'm feeling the following symptoms, it usually starts with headache, nausea, fatigue, changes to appetite, et cetera. It, it is thrown back to the community as that is not enough numerical significance to require action. What you were saying about the exception, right? Get a better scientist. Yeah, I mean, yes, that is that is what we. This is our. This is the other point that I was going to make in terms of South Hall, and I'll give that clear example. Um, but then, more scientists come in and have been very preoccupied with the phenomenon that is happening happening there um, in Cancer Corridor, um, because now they're starting to understand the links between that level of pesticide and Parkinson's and dementia and neurodevelopmental diseases. And now it's become almost like a quasi laboratory for scientists. But unfortunately, the people continue to breathe the poor air because back to the the whole system of policy and science and what is getting measured, et cetera, is still waiting for that very clear evidence that goes, it's almost like the whole quid pro quo. What is happening, what you're ingesting is directly correlated to the poor health outcomes. And of course, anybody that understands biology knows that that's not how it works, right? You can, we can all, both of us can be smokers for 50 years. I might get cancer you might not. So that's where I'm asking in terms of your experience is how do we get, what are some principles to move the needle a little bit quicker? And the reason I say quicker is because I think they're in their 15th year of fighting for justice and the data is still TBA in terms of scientists still going, well, we can't really, really prove because that is what policy is waiting. That's what the lawyers are waiting for. Get a better scientist. And there's two divergent things you mentioned, policy mm-hmm. and law. Mm, true. Those are yep. very different. To prove it legally for any environmental health, uh, any environmental indicator to be linked to a health outcome is close to impossible. Mm-hmm. And this is a problem, you know, and we've seen all the movies, right? A Civil Affair, Dark Waters, or Black Waters, whatever it was. Yeah, Dark Waters. Dark Waters, um, Eric and Bronkovich and so forth. Mm. And people have to die. And a lot of people have to die. And a lot of other people have to their lives completely messed up to prove it in court. Well, depending on the liability law, right? Mm. It'll depend on country. It'll depend on state. Science is completely different. If scientists are telling you, well, we can't do anything and we can't talk to the politicians, which is different from lawyers, mm-hmm. then get a better scientist. Mm. There is and so what, what does that mean of according? Well, there is extensive science on decision-making under uncertainty. Mm-hmm. There is extensive science on decision-making with unknowns. There is extensive science on different approaches to attribution. It will depend on confidence interval. If we're talking about people living and dying maybe confidence in an interval of 50% is acceptable to go to a politician, not court, but a politician, whereas a physical scientist, like a physicist, will say it has to be confidence interval of under 1%. It's about, um, you know, in medicine, when they use multidisciplinary teams, 
So the traditional medicine model is a doctor is the expert. And the doctor tells you typically he, what he wants and your experience, your reporting, your reaction is irrelevant. Mm. What they do now is multidisciplinary teams where they say, fine, you're an endocrinologist, you're an oncologist, you're a surgeon, you're a throat specialist, and they get together, look at the same data. And if you have people in that mindset, then they discuss and come to a consensus conclusion. If you have the egos or the silos or the mind blocks, then a person is not going to work well on that team. So if a scientist is telling you we only have 15 years of data and only 14 people have died of cancer, that's not good enough. You need a better scientist. I think that's where I'm going to end it because that is um, <laughs> a really good phrase. But that's, um, and this is what we're trying to build with this, specifically with this paper, is how to do that science more empathically kinder and accurate um because we stumbled upon this when when we were working with a community in south hall that the data that had been analyzed by public health england they were going for to gp data and using that to 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 analyze how many people have been sick in the years coming in of the environmental pollutant entering the system which is a very logical point of of data collection, right? Surely, GPs will record in the, the net, in the last three years higher levels of X, Y, Z. But when we went in and looked, we thought, but how do GPs log? Was one of our questions because if they're logging, I've got a headache, I now have a stomach ache, I'm constantly getting migraines, then great then there is something there to look at. But if they're logging specifically once the disease is identified, right? So when it's migraines and, and headaches, but there is not a diagnosis of hypertension, for example, nothing gets logged in. So we argued back to Public Health England that that was not a reliable data source because it's not logging those initial symptoms. But secondly, when it was really acute that you had an asthma attack, or what that person's starter disease had progressed very quickly, they weren't going to the GP, they were going directly to the emergency room, which none of us have data access to. And so then we, we, we said to them, if that's the case, then we have to find another way to analyze this. But for you to say that there's no correlation due to this specific data set is not accurate. Then secondly, they also looked at absenteeism of children. Again, logical way of thinking, which is a spike in absentees, absenteeism as this pollutant enters the system. We went in and we talked to the community, and they said that most of them are shift workers. The children, regardless of them feeling sick, not sick, they're going to school. So we asked, did you log and did you ask how many children perhaps performances stopped, you know, declined, or maybe the children were there, but not necessarily present. I mean, teachers log these types of things, right? Changes in behavior, et cetera. We thought maybe that's a better metric. So, but I don't know if that's a question of time, which then correlates to money to be able to do the lived experience correctly, or is that a question of will? What do you think? Multidisciplinary team. 
you need a statistician, you need a health specialist, you need a behavioral specialist. Right. You may need a doctor or nurse. Mm. So look at the data differently and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. The key is in personality. Will they be willing to listen to each other mm-hmm. and admit limitations to their own knowledge and their own disciplines? Or are they going to start yelling and try and dominate? So scientists are human beings. It's about getting the right people and particularly those who will say, well, here's my domain. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. And putting them together and having a discussion can come up with appropriate conclusions. I mean, it's interesting for someone to say there is no correlation, which is different from saying there was no found correlation. Mm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's, I'm going to just stop the recording now. This show and the work of the Urban Health Council wouldn't have been possible without the support of funders and contributors. We'd like to thank the businesses, Lendlease, Matter Architecture, Aseni Projects, MAP, the Human Nature Partnership, Town, as well as the National Lottery Community Fund, whose contribution has allowed us to delve deeper into community health and begin creating healing futures. We'd also like to thank the following generous individuals, Nick Tyler, Robert Stark, Carl McFadden, Claire Delmar, Jake Robinson, Matthew Pembry, David Smith, Lucy Stewart, Marquetta Nosilova, Dominic Campbell, Magali Thompson, James Pellet, and those who wish to remain anonymous, who have all become supporters of the independent science being produced at Centric Lab in the Urban Health Council. If this is your first time listening to the show, please head over to urbanhealthcouncil.com to check out more. And if you can, please consider becoming a supporter. Thanks. Bye.